Hello, hello. Welcome to Conversations with the Chiefs. Uh, today, we have a very exciting guest with us today, uh, Josh Wildstein. Uh, he is a former minor league uh, hockey announcer from Atlanta, Georgia, turned healthcare technology leader, and so happens to be the chief executive officer at Figure One. Uh, Josh, great to have you. Thank you. Glad to be here. I always say, Josh, that, uh, you know, I have a face for radio, <laughs> so um, I'm sure your program was quite successful. Yeah, I I'm, I'm also have a face for radio. <laughs> okay. Yeah, great, great. I'm, I appreciate you joining. Very much appreciate it. Thanks. And uh, could we just open up the segment about telling the audience about, a little about who you are on a, a personal level, Josh? Sure, sure. So um, I guess on a personal level... Um, I'm a father of two. I have a nine-year-old and a three-year-old. Um, I'm a COVID refugee. I, I, my wife and I are both from Atlanta. We were living in New York City the last 10 years. And then um, right as COVID kind of started to um, hit heavy in New York, we came to Atlanta for what we thought would be three weeks. And that's three years ago. So, so we've been here for a little while. But um, and, you know, I'm a big sports fan, as you mentioned. Um, I did minor league uh, hockey announcing out of college, worked at CNN Sports uh, initially, um, and I also enjoy travel, so. Perfect. Could you talk to us about the business, Figure One? Um, you know, we find it to be very fascinating and interesting as an organization. Love to hear your perspective on your business, um, how you get in integrated into the business, why you chose it, just more about directionally you know, just where it's going. Sure, sure. Happy to talk about it. So figure one is a pretty unique um, platform. The press that we've received over the years, we call it the Instagram for doctors. It's kind of right. If I saw you at a cocktail party, I might use that. But it's a case sharing platform um, where healthcare professionals, and by that, I mean everyone from doctors down to medical students, dentists, you know, technologists, anybody in between, um, can upload and share real-world medical cases or come and consume that information. Um, and over the years, we've grown to uh, include users in 196 countries around the world, all through word of mouth. We've had um, now over 107,000 real-world cases uploaded to the platform. We're closing in on 2 million comments on those, uh, on those cases. Um, in terms of my involvement in the business, I'm not one of the, the founders of the business. I knew, know the, the founding CEO. Um, I've been in digital health a long time. And while I was um, running my own consulting business um, on, a, on a visit he was making to New York, he's actually friends with my wife, which is how I know him. Um, he asked if I would help figure out some way to monetize the, the platform. And so I came in initially uh, to help figure out the go-to-market strategy and the revenue engine, and then um, you know, as I as I say, he kind of like the Godfather made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and so I came on full time uh, to run the the revenue side. And then at the end of 2019, um, he and the board asked if I would take over as as CEO. So that really started full in earnest in the beginning of 2020. And as Figure One has gained you know, popularity as a powerful tool for not only medical education, but for collaboration, how do you uh, envision the uh, the platform evolving to really meet some of the needs of healthcare professionals in the future? Yeah, I think what's interesting about the platform is that uh, most people assume that it's kind of a social network, um, and there certainly is a social aspect to it. 
um, where you can have, you know, kind of interaction that is typical of a social platform. You can follow people or cases or institutions. You can comment, as I mentioned, you can like, you can share. But really, when I looked at it for the first time, what I saw was people really trying to collaborate together to improve the outcomes for patients. And so I think the future for our platform is both to continue to evolve kind of the informal nature um, of the case sharing that's happening now, but to also evolve a more formal way for people to collaborate in a more meaningful way for us to demonstrate that we can get to a faster diagnosis, a more accurate diagnosis, and really what the impact of patient care is. And we're doing some work to, to kind of um, move that ball forward. But that's kind of where I see the future of it going. I mean, you think about what's happening today with physicians in terms of their time, right? Um, the allocation they have on a per patient basis, they're just, they're constantly taxed and stressed. I mean, do you see them actually using the platform more regularly, more so than before as a result? Or maybe has that changed because of their behavior in terms of what they have to address daily in their in their current practice? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. I mean, I think we have, you know, users all over the world. And so it really depends on who they are. I would say that in the US, um, users are certainly more bogged down in, you know, for what I'll call the bureaucracy of healthcare than they've been before. But I think it doesn't restrict their access to the platform. I think it just changes how they might use the platform. Um, and so I think what, what has always worked for us and what we see when we look at how the users educate each other, which is really kind of the core of what's happening, is that it's always quick, it's to the point, any images that are shared are very specific with very specific annotations applied and people uh, come to the platform looking for very specific pieces of advice or to share and give feedback that's very specific. It's very rare that someone's gonna come in and say, you know, what do you think of the latest guidelines from the uh, AHA on this or that? We certainly run interactive polls, if you will, and we, we pull that information out of the community. They're certainly happy to share it but it's not the core way that they they leverage the platform. Yeah, because we understand that building a strong and engaged community, it's essential for any platform success. Um, how have uh, Figure One nurtured its community for healthcare professionals to encourage that active participation like you're mentioning? So we have a, a team that, um, a community team that basically oversees both the moderation, the upload of the cases and kind of the, the health of the community. Um, and so we do everything we can to facilitate the ability for the members to interact easily with each other. We have the ability within the platform for users to, um, and I put this in kind of quotes, but page other users to get specific and quick feedback on a case. And so we help, um, if we need to, facilitate getting that content to the right people in the right uh, amount of time. And so, for example, if you're a primary care physician, but you know you've got a patient with a dermatological issue, we can send a push notification um, or an email to every derm who's opted in to receive that kind of notification saying, hey, you know, Dr. Bill needs, you know, eyes on a case quickly. And those cases are usually resolved. And by resolved, I mean the original poster has enough information to take an action in under an hour. And so we can help, you know, facilitate some of that. Um, and then, as I mentioned, we run a lot of polls and a lot of quizzes um, that the audience really loves. We have really strong engagement. The polls we try to restrict both to um, case-based questions, but also to kind of more interesting questions going on in healthcare. Um, and so as an example of some of the things that we've done to evolve that, 
when the um, recent Roe versus Wade decision came down, you know, whatever that was nine months ago, not only did we pull the community about it, but we then reached out and partnered with Cleveland Clinic to do a kind of micro season, if you will, of three episodes of our podcast, demonstrating in each episode a real world case from the Cleveland Clinic um, where abortion is healthcare, essentially, kind of depoliticizing the issue. So we do a lot of those things to kind of keep people engaged. But honestly, at the core, it still is about um, the cases. And that's the single most popular thing um, going in the platform. And so the quizzes we create are case-based quizzes. So when you think about your user base, you know, the peer-to-peer actions between physicians learning in terms of, you know, the clinical education piece, um, how do you um, maintain credibility with the content and what's shared on a case on a case basis, right? Um, do you have a way of validating things in terms of the use of that information or, or are you not doing that? So on the content that we create, it's created by uh, an army of medical writers, whether they're clinicians or medical writers. And so obviously we know the source of all of that information. Um, when users post cases to each other, we make a very strong point to not get in the middle unless there's been some kind of active complaint against the content. And so we have had um, certainly situations over the years where people might post um, cases that are not uh, either based in, uh, let's call it peer-reviewed medicine, might make statements that are you know, questionable. And when users flag these things, then we can get involved. Um, but typically we try not to do that. Uh, and so we really try to leave the community up to kind of a self-policing nature where the credibility is really based on the quality of the information that you offer, both in the um, case images or the text of the case, and then any comments around it. And I'll tell you that of the, you know, whatever, almost 2 million cases, we very rarely have had to intervene. And on the cases themselves, very rarely had to intervene. You know, it's a, it's a professional community of people that are very educated and very busy and very few people are in there to kind of, you know, play games, if you will. And just to backtrack a little bit, uh, when you first started as CEO, uh, was there something that you encountered that's more challenging than what you expected? Well, I, I <laughs> it's a loaded question. There's a lot, there was a lot there. <laughs> um, I started as CEO right before COVID hit. And so literally my entire tenure as CEO has been remote and virtual. And so that came with its you know, own set of kind of on the fly challenges. Uh, in addition, I relocated my family <laughs> from one city to the other and had an eight week old child at the time. So that was all problematic. Um, you know, We had a limited runway when I came in and the goal was really to try to kind of um, ensure the health of the business, both on the financial side as well as on the product side. And so we not only doubled the revenue in the beginning, but we rebuilt the entire platform, not even rebuilt, but evolved it. Um, one of the biggest challenges was that the initial version of the product, kind of the MVP that was launched, was really the same version that had existed for a while. And one of the challenges there was that we had all these cases that were incredibly valuable, but none were really tagged with a lot of data to make the experience be truly personalized. And so users would come and everybody would see the same feed of information, which is great if you wanna see all sorts of things, but if you're a cardiologist, and you show up and see dermatology or you know uh, any other specialty that you're not interested in, you may not have a great experience. And so we um, tagged 
all, you know, at that time it was like 90,000 cases, um, both with the mesh taxonomy, which is a medical taxonomy. Plus we recruited clinicians from the community to also tag those cases. And so now everybody's guaranteed a personalized experience. And so, you know, really the challenges were both personal and um, on the product side from a, you know, kind of sales perspective, we've always had terrific demand and receptivity from um, the people that we sell our kind of innovative stuff to. So that's always been good. So is there that one tool that you always carry with you, uh, no matter what project that you're working on? Does everyone always has that secret tool, you know, in their toolbox? I would say for me, the most important thing um, that I've tried to do as CEO, and I've appreciated this when I was not CEO, was to really be transparent with the uh, with the employees. And I know there's a lot of um, I wouldn't call it controversy, but a lot of different opinions about things like that. I always felt like, especially in a startup, um, not only for me to have the credibility as the CEO, but as the respect of the employees, you know, it's important that they understand where the business is, whether it's healthy, unhealthy, what's going to be done to improve it, where are we going, that kind of thing. Um, and so from day one, um, when I made a lot of changes to the organization, literally on day one, it was all meant to um, deliver the kind of transparency and the go forward plan that I thought was required. And so um, that's always been my my real main go-to, if you will, or, or you know, kind of um, tool in my tool belt. I'm thinking about leadership and just the challenges of being a CEO. Going back in time, did you have a particular mentor that really um, kind of really assisted you um, with developing skills or somebody you really respected that you learned a lot from? that now is really helping, helped you transition to be successful in a leadership position? You know, it's funny, I was thinking about this. Um, it, there's not one single person. I was, I was thinking about the things that I repeat the most um, or that I use the most. And I would say, if you thought about it like a pie, there's probably seven slices from seven different people that I use. Um, you know, my father is a physician, but also a successful businessman. And he, despite having all of these years of medical training, would always tout that he has an MSS, a master's of street smarts, because he's from Brooklyn and that's <laughs> what he uses. Um, so I learned a lot from him there. I had an early boss when I was at WebMD, um, who I noticed when we would travel and I was a single guy, um, he had a young family. We would always go eat at great restaurants, stay at really nice hotels. And he would always say to me, you know what? If the business is asking you to leave your family, they can pay for a nice meal. And I've always kind of um, thought about that when I ask other people to travel from, from my businesses. Um, I had another boss at WebMD who used to say repeatedly, people support what they help create. And I've used that line over and over again. And then as, as CEO of Figure One, I've leaned on a lot of the board members um, who have been really helpful to me, both in terms of, of you know, telling me what they see in other companies they've invested in that make a lot of sense, but also supporting me um, and and kind of, you know, as CEO, especially in a startup, especially one that that might need some some work, you never really have a sense of how well you're doing. And a lot of times when you're in the boat, just bailing, it always feels like it's raining. And I would talk to the board members and they'd say, what, you know, what are you talking about? Like, this is not the house on fire. I've got 30 companies where the house is really on fire. So, so those kind of things are really, um, really helpful to me. So as you look at your own personal traits that you've adopted, um, as you are 
forward facing looking at the employees that you bring onto your team are there specific traits that you look for yeah i think the two it's interesting because it's evolved over time both in terms of um, things that I've seen work and things that I thought would work that haven't. I would say the number one thing um, for me is grit. I need somebody who is going to have a real resolve and not be easily deterred. Somebody who is going to try to figure it out. There, there, a phrase that I use that I think the Marines used that I stole, but was this concept of Semper Gumby, which was essentially <laughs> that you have to be flexible and be willing to not only do strategic things, but if you need to push a broom, you got to push a broom. And I really look for people now that have that, that attitude, whereas maybe in the beginning or when I was younger, I would look for the person who seemed maybe the most intellectual or the person who may have had the most experience in one thing, but turns out is very rigid or inflexible. Um, and I think it also varies by the stage of the business that you're in. But to me, that's the most important thing. It's funny because I have so many young people that when I use that Semper Gumby, they didn't even know what the hell Gumby was. I had to next week put a picture of the gum, you know, <laughs> but, but, the, but the point is the same. And, you know, and I've just been lucky to have a lot of people that are willing to just put the nose to the grindstone no matter what. And that's really the most important thing, I think. I definitely understand the military term. I'm ex-military years ago. Um, and I was, my viewpoint was leaders were, they were never self-promoting. They were always there to support you, to guide you, but they were never out front, never took credit for anything. So, I mean, is that a guiding principle you kind of live by yourself? Yeah, I mean, I certainly I certainly um, have always tried to do that. And that's something that I've always respected from folks that I've worked with um, in the past. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of different forms of leadership, certainly a million books written on leadership and a lot of things um, discussed. But for me, it's always been about the people who are both uh, upfront and honest, very transparent, um, but also very, you know, self-deprecating and self-serving. And, you know, one of the people that I look up to a lot um, here in Atlanta is Arthur Blank, A, because I'm a Falcons fan, he owns the Falcons, but B, he's one of the founders, one of the two founders of Home Depot. And he and his co-founder, Bernie Marcus, have done so much for the city of Atlanta, both in terms of hospitals, aquariums, giving back all over with very little ever asked in return. And I have to say half the people have no idea where their money's even going. And so um, I've always, you know, kind of respected folks that um, walk softly and carry a big stick, as they say. So how uh, with the with the blend of different skill sets that you know you have you know your team has, how do you increase that probability that you'll always win in the industry as it evolves and change? Yeah, that's tough because when you're in a startup and you you've created a product that nobody had seen before, it's kind of hard to to know if you're going to win or not. I think in healthcare, the good news and the bad news are the same news, which is really not a lot changes very fast, um, and so I think for us. The key thing is to always, and the thing that's worked for us has been to always make sure that whatever we do for the product or for our advertisers, we're offering very clear, simple value. You know, users have to be able to come to figure one and understand how it benefits them to do so, or they're not going to come back. And on the advertising side, you know, same kind of thing where we're doing things that may be a little bit unique and different from the traditional, and it has to be very obvious to our advertisers, how they're going to benefit. And so I think if you stick to that in the long term, you'll always be best positioned to win. I don't think anybody can guarantee you're going to win, but you'll be best positioned. 
And as you're doing that positioning, I mean, obviously strategies change. Is there uh, an initiative on your whiteboard that wasn't there 30 days ago? Yeah, I mean, it's probably the same that's on everybody's whiteboard, <laughs> you know, AI, right? I mean, um, right. but what's interesting is, uh, aside from all of the ubiquity of the discussion about it, we happen to be sitting on a really unique set of data that I do think really lends itself well um, to the applicability of, of AI. And so, you know, we've got 107,000 cases and 2 million comments on those cases. And I think that there are ways for us um, even, you know, starting today, but certainly with partnerships and as the technology evolves, you know, evolving it over time to lend a lot of value um, with AI combining with our content. So, you know, as an example, you know, today if a physician searches in Google for something medical, they'll get back a curated list that Google thinks is most relevant and that's about it. You could come in and search for something very similar on figure one and see very quickly, not only all the cases that are relevant, the outcomes of those cases, the comments that were relevant, you know, one day being able to say, hey, patients with the symptoms that you are describing ended up with, you know, one of these three things, these were the best treatments. You know, you kind of see um, the way that that would go. And so, you know, I think for us over time, um, there's a lot of smart ways to think about that. And so I would say that's kind of, you know, always something I get asked about a lot by our investors, by our employees, and, you know, by, by other folks. I mean, speak about the investor community. Have you seen um, a real shift in terms of how they evaluate? I mean, if you're looking for investors in this case, right, to continue to scale the business, I mean, do you see the investor uh, the investor appetite changing? Is it more critical now than it has been in the last uh, six to 12 months? Or, you know, I mean, what, what's your what's your viewpoint in terms of where it's going? Yeah, I talked to a lot of investors. I talked to a lot of bankers about investors. You know, they all kind of reach out and I take a lot of these calls just to keep my my finger on the pulse. I would say, you know, the things that you hear commonly are all all true. You know, for us, my number one, and I think I'm maybe a little bit different than a lot of the younger startup CEOs or the more inexperienced. For me, my goal from day one was how do I create the business to be as close to, if not profitable as possible to extend my life, my runway, my survival. And so we've always been pushing in that direction. I think that that is something that, that I hear repeatedly that investors are looking for, that they're also looking for a repeatable business model with customers either who have come back, doesn't have to necessarily be SaaS, but customers that have bought again, or a, a kind of multitude of customers. And for us, you know, we're lucky in that our customer slide is you know 30 different life science companies that everybody recognizes. And so, um, you know, that's, that's a very clear set of, of folks. And then I think that, you know, investors are looking for today versus previously uh, just a lot more um, places to pour gas on the fire that are more, uh, I don't even want to say less risky, but it seems like less risky. You know, in the past, you may have had some equation where adding money seems like it would add to success. Today, I think they wanted to see that equation be much more proven um, to know that. The only other thing I hear repeatedly is if you're in a high cash burn business with no clear path to profitability, it will be very difficult. Um, and luckily, we've positioned ourselves not with the you know foresight that this was necessarily how the world was going to go, but just for me, how I felt like the business should be run. And so that's kind of been been good, I guess. And with that being said, if you had a uh, 10x your current budget, uh, what would you spend it on? Well, I would certainly go higher. One, one of the things I've learned is that 
more engineers is not necessarily better. I would go hire really savvy um, folks that have worked in in AI and understand the problems we're trying to solve. And I would put them off to the side and see what comes from that. I would certainly try to do more to generate awareness and ubiquity around the figure one brand. We're very well known with a lot of folks. We've got you know, 100,000 followers on Instagram and whatnot. Um, but I certainly think there's a bulk of, you know, what I would call mid-career physicians or older who may not know figure one. And I would also take a, a certain portion of that budget. This goes back to kind of my radio days. And I would create what they call a street team, you know, which is just like I would take a coffee cart and like four really excited people in an iPad and put them in front of every hospital in America. And I would leave them there for a week and see how many of those doctors I could get onto the platform. Um, and I wish I had the money to to do all of that. But um, so that's kind of what I would I would think about going to do. I mean, outside of AI, is there anything that's really surprised you more recently in the industry? That's been wow. It's one of those moments you, you're surprised by. I think the things that have surprised me most, you know, so my I, I didn't mention this, but one of my um, I have two graduate degrees and one was in health administration. And I actually spent a year as a resident in a hospital and then two years at Accenture Consulting in healthcare. And, you know. I mean, not a ton has changed, sadly. Like, that's the biggest thing. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I still think hospitals are run in a very similar way. I still think doctors are incentivized to do more testing than maybe is required. I think there's a lot of pressure on physicians to generate fees. And I would say the biggest trend, when, when I was in graduate school, you know, this is over 20 years ago, my goal, and this is a dated reference, I guess, was to kind of be the Jerry Maguire for doctors. I felt like doctors needed an advocate to negotiate that many of them had no idea what they were getting paid, how much, why, et cetera. Um, and, and that was back in the day when doctors were much more likely to stay independent. And now, you know, you fast forward 20 years and almost all of them are employed. And I guess the biggest thing I'm, I'm surprised by is how um, little resistance there is to that or desire to be employed. Um, mm -hmm. I think that surprises me a little bit. It's almost, um, it seems like a fait accompli with many folks. And that I didn't think would be the case, you know, going way back. I mean, why, why do you think that's that's true at this point? Why do you think physicians kind of just given up on that? I think part of it is that a younger, I think part of it is the the evolution of, I don't even know if you call it technology for the EMRs, but I think the idea that practicing medicine today is very different than it was way back. And I think people are resigned um, to, to kind of what's required. And I think in the world where they look at how it is that they've got to practice, how little time they get to spend with patients, um, it just feels probably like an easier thing to do to just be a nine to five kind of guy. Um, I also think that doctors um, by their nature are not very uh, buck the system types you know, and I think most of them just want to practice medicine. And the ones that I've uh, spoken to about why they've been employed, you know, I think if if you could pair every great physician with a practice that was really well run by a business person that they didn't have to think about, but represented a better way to work and a more fair way to be compensated, they would do that. But I don't think that they know really how to do that. And when I've gone to a number of medical meetings, some of the more interesting sessions are always about how to negotiate your contract. And the things that are asked there by these residents are kind of, it's amazing how little they still understand about business. I mean, mm -hmm. and so I think when you don't have confidence in that, it's hard to you know, be the guy who's going to swim against the tide. And um, hospitals today are run by MBAs and private equity, and they're aggressive and they threaten doctors. And 
You know, who wants to be the guy with $200,000 in loans who's being told that, you know, all of your referral sources are going to be cut off if you want to hang a shingle in cardiology because we own every private or every primary care practice within 50 miles of your office. I mean, and which is what gets said. I mean, so, mm -hmm. you know, that's no good. And is there uh, one lesson uh, in your position as CEO that's taught you uh, something that you think that everyone should learn at some point in their life? I think the two things that I've learned would be one, it's really important to be adaptable to all different types of people. Um, and it's something that I try to teach my kids and living in New York was a great, you know, kind of um, environment for this. You have to be comfortable talking to everyone from the bus driver to the MIT professor and being able to relate to those people um, is important. And as CEO, I'm not a technology guy. I've had to learn how to talk to engineers. I've had to learn how to talk to engineers who don't understand business necessarily. I don't understand technology. Um, and, and, you know, and that goes across a multitude of different employees that you have in your company, some of which you may have a lot of experience in, like in sales or business development, some you may not. And that's really, um, I think, important to try to learn how to be able to do that. The second lesson I've learned is anybody can be fired at any moment for any reason. And it doesn't matter if you're at IBM or a startup. I think there's a fallacy. And I probably held this as well in the beginning of my career. Well, startups are more risky. We just worked with Novartis. They laid off 15,000 people. I mean, many have been there 19, 20 years. So, you know, um, things change quickly. And I've experienced, I mean, I, I lived through the internet bubble. So I experienced a lot of that. And I think um, that's something everybody should be prepared for. I totally agree. I mean, I lived through it too. It was pretty scary. You know, yeah, you I mean, that many companies imploding all at once. It's like, wow, it's uh, it blows you away. I, I have a, I should write all the stories down that I have from that time because they're unbelievable and they will never be repeated. Um, and it was just a lot of interesting point in time environment. But, you know, to some extent, I think people understand that when they go into a startup, there's risk. I think the, the misconception is that, you know, um, there's not risk if you work for some larger established company. And if you look at where all these layoffs are coming and how many people have been laid off in media and in healthcare and in technology, I mean, it, it you know, startups are certainly riskier, but they're not, you know, other other roles are not without risk, even though they may feel totally, that way. Totally agree. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't mean they won't happen. So I agree. Yeah. I had one uh, question for you. Um, waking up every single day, what do you enjoy most about your current company, your people? I mean, what inspires you to do this every single day? Because being a CEO and being in, in this, this kind of environment, right? It's constantly challenging. Why do it? Yeah, well, first of all, I'll tell you, I didn't have great hair when I started as CEO. So, um, so you know, there's yeah. limits to that. But uh, no, I, really the thing that, and the reason I agreed to take the job and the thing that I've enjoyed the most about figure one from the first day up through now is the challenge of it. You know, I really like, for whatever reason, I'm sure it's deep in my, you know, psychosis, but, you know, I like being thrown in the deep end of the pool and trying to figure that out. And, um, you know, every day when you wake up, there's the kind of 100,000 foot challenge of what we're trying to do. And I'm inspired when I look in the app at the sharing that goes on, the, the cases that we've had solved by people all on different parts of the world. You know, we saw Zika cases and MERS cases and COVID cases way before anybody knew what those were. And so I always find that to be really inspiring. And then, um, you know, when you even in a remote basis, when you work with people who show up every day 
really enthusiastic, um, you know, I find that to be inspiring. And so um, it's harder to feel it through through Zoom, but it's still palpable. And so I feel like I owe them um, the same level of effort that they're willing to give me at, at a minimum. And as you are thrown into that deep end, I'm sure a lot of people require your attention, uh, whether it be you know, in your professional life or your personal life. Um, how do you find that balance between personal time versus business? Yeah, that's hard. I've not been great at that. Um, <laughs> in the beginning, it was really hard because I had a young child and you know it was COVID and we were kind of doing a lot of significant change to the business. I would say recently I've gotten to the place, well, there's two things. One is I've gotten to the place where I basically can say to myself, look, you know, if it's the weekend, nothing significant is going to happen in these two days. And it's more important to just clear my mind. Having said all that, it doesn't always work. And so honestly, there are weekends where I'll just delete Slack from my phone. I will literally delete my email account from my phone just so I'm not even tempted to see it. Um, so I wouldn't say I'm the greatest um, at that, but I've made it a real a real point to try to be present. And you know, one of the nice things about being at home is that I do see my kids frequently, especially my youngest daughter who's here all the time. So that's been um, that's been nice. And as you were navigating, you know, your professional career, um, is, are there any stories or any major setbacks that you can share that really defined your outlook on how you approached not only your personal life but you know business also? Yeah, I mean, I've been through a lot of a lot of things. I mean, you know, when I was at WebMD, um, they shut down our entire department with no notice. I was basically pulled to the side and said, "Hey, you know, we're we're buying this other company. We're shutting down your group, which was seventeen people at that time. Do you want to? We've been told you're somebody to keep. Do you want to stay?" And I said, "When do I have to tell you?" And they said, "In the next thirty seconds." So I said, "Sure." Mm -hmm. Then I was immediately dispatched out to California to basically download all the information from an employee that I knew, and I was very young at the time, and she was much older, that I knew was being let go. Then while I was out there, that happened to be 9-11 um, hit, and that was kind of crazy. I drove back across the country, and then when I got back to Atlanta, where WebMD was headquartered, there had been a massive reorg that had been um, planned, and we went into a hotel ballroom where they announced this reorg, and it was into five distinct teams with a bunch of people. And I was leading one of those teams. I had no idea what was happening until they revealed my name on the, on the org chart. And I'm sitting at a table with all these people that now work for me who had never met in my life. So, you know, you learn resiliency in a lot of these things. And, um, you know, there's certainly personal things in my life that I've experienced that have led to the same conclusion. But to me, that's really one of the most important characteristics, which is just, you've got to stay resilient. Um, and be willing to roll with the punches, as I mentioned before. And uh, how we usually like to end our segment, uh, Josh, is um, just giving one piece of advice for an up-and-comer who wants a BCEO. Um, is there any helpful advice that you could uh, provide them? I would say that if you're somebody who wants to be CEO, whether it's your own company or you're coming into a company, go talk to three other CEOs who have been in very similar positions and then after you talk to them, um, make a decision. Be and I'm not saying that that's going to be a negative uh, response. It all may be great. But I think that the best way to really hear what the truth is, is to talk to people who've lived it. Um, and so, you know, that would be my biggest um, piece of advice, which is, you know, really have an honest conversation 
with somebody doing it about what you're about to face. And, um, and hopefully you pick the right people and they'll give you straightforward answers. Um, and I, I wish I was able to do that. You know, I just wasn't, but it's important. If I, if I was to go do this again, I would certainly do that. Take my own advice. <laughs>